the church in Thyatira is kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a stark departure from the churches we've looked at so far. So when we look at the churches we've seen so far, they've been these coastal cities, right? Um, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, they're kind of along these coastal plains. Um, there's lots of trade, lots of seafaring. Even Pergamum, that didn't have a harbor, was a rival academic location. Um, we talked about last week how they had, they were, th- there was this fight between Alexandria and, and Egypt and Pergamum, who had the best library and the beginnings, all this stuff. Like there was all these areas that had commerce and trade and international flair and academia, and that's not Thyatira. Thyatira is probably about as blue-collar a city as we're going to talk about. Um, it's filled with textile workers and bronze workers, and it's a forty mile, it's forty miles away from Pergamum as kind of a military outpost. It's a completely different population base. It's a whole different kind of people are living in this city. And while we've seen how persecution has hit a city and how um, persecution from the culture outside has come in, how Ephesus had a, a great love of truth but a lack of heart, Thyatira has the opposite problem. It has a huge heartbeat for its community, but it lacks a conviction to share the truth. Um, and so they're having struggles in, in, this, in this little city. And so when we look at this, and we're also going to see some of the struggles they have are not persecution as someone coming after them and trying to imprison them. It's social and economic persecution. And while we just saw, when we looked at the Voice of the Martyrs um, video and we're praying for the persecuted church, we look how the persecuted church around the world, there's a lot of physical violence towards them. I would say that Thyatira probably speaks more to the situation we have in, a, in the United States than, than that kind of persecution. Where there's a huge heart and maybe a shying away from the truth in a lot of the church in America and where we don't feel like someone's going to open up the door of our business and assassinate us. We do feel the pressure of, well, if I make that decision, I might lose my customers. I might lose, I don't know. I like my way of life. I don't want my way of life to have any hiccups. I'm not sure. I think we feel that pressure here in the U.S. a little more. So I think while we can identify with all of these cities in a little way, I think Thyatira might have some very clear pictures for us. So let's start. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So again, we've all, all of these letters, we saw the first picture of who Jesus is and the seven lampstands, the sword out of his mouth, the eyes of fire, the bronze feet. And then for every church, these get broken down. And so in Thyatira, we get broken down the bronze feet and the flaming eye. And this really means this, that Jesus sees everything. This isn't Sauron, the all-seeing eye from Lord of the Rings, gazing like a spotlight over everything. And, you know, you could hide around the corner. Because even if, if, he, if most of you have seen the movie, or a lot of you, or those of you that can't stand the movie, you should see it. But there's, there's, the, there's the part where if you could just hide from the eye behind a rock, or if you get around the corner, then the eye couldn't see you, right? Well, that's not Jesus. These are the flaming eyes of the one who is everywhere and sees everything. And it's, it's a picture to this church. I see what's going on. I see everything. I see everything that's happening. I know what's in your heart. I know what's in your hands. I know what you're doing. I know what you're thinking. That Jesus knows everything. And it's an image to this church to say, you can't hide from me. I see it all. And then you have the bronze feet, which I think has a dual purpose because there is a massive bronze working um, 
industry in Thyatira, that there were metal workers, there were iron, or there were iron, bronze workers, literally just said that, bronze workers in this city. And so they, you have this dual purpose, like it's a cultural connection for these people to go, Jesus has the bronze, I know what bronze is like. If you shape that, that's some heavy shoes. If you've got some bronze feet, that's some, I, they, they're going to make a connection. And you see that throughout the scriptures. Jesus used a lot of agricultural metaphors in a land full of agriculture. And so I think that's, that gives us, as the church today, permission to use cultural connections of today to help people see the truth of God. But we can't let the cultural connection shy away from the truth. Does that make sense? So you have the truth of what we see, the image of Jesus, the bronze feet, which really means that it's steadfast, it's unmovable, heavy-footed, firm foundation, unwavering, not going to compromise. That's the picture we get of this, this image of Jesus. I see everything, and I am immovable. I see what's happening, and my word will stand forever. So we get that as the first picture of Thyatira. And then we're introduced to this character. Uh, well, no, we're not. That's next. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. I just want to talk about Jezebel so much, but we'll move. We'll, hold on, hold on. Jesus gives them a compliment first. And he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he starts with a compliment. He says, I see what you're doing. I see the heart you have for your community. I see how you work in the community. And your, your last works, your latter works exceed the first. So this is a church that's growing in its love and affection for the community. It's growing in its service to the community. It's not shrinking back. That's not the story we typically hear of a lot of churches. We hear the stories of the church that was on fire. You hear stories of revival and doing great things. And then something happens. Uh, something comes along. And then the church's doors fold. Like we hear stories of there's about a thousand pastors a month leave the ministry. That there's several, about 500 churches a month close their doors. Like churches are failing across the globe. They're failing. They're shutting down there. And so we, we know those to be facts. That as you grow as a church, then something can have a hiccup. There could be something happen, a false teaching, a scandal. Something happens. Maybe the community changes. Jobs change. Things, something hits. And the church can shrink. This church isn't having that effect. As they grow, they're continually giving of themselves into the community. This is a church probably planted by Lydia. We don't know this for a fact, but Lydia is from Thyatira. When you read in Philippians about Lydia, who was the sponsor of Paul's ministry, who was there, partners with Paul in these ministries, this is where she's from. She was a purveyor of purple dye. Um, this is where purple dye was put, so the, the, the color of royalty. And I, I, when I was reading, it's not like the purple we know. It would be eggplanty, reddish purple. I don't know. I can barely do the basic three colors and the color wheel, but there's, it's, there was a color of royalty. It was a color of, of opulence of, right? And so it was a very expensive and hard process, but if you could do it and do it right and had access to it, it was very desirable. And so she grew wealthy in the, in the dye industry in Thyatira. And so this place, this area is full of of great history and rich tradition from Paul and Lydia and the church going forward. And, and Jesus sees that. And he says, you guys are doing amazing stuff. I see your works. I see how you labor. And you don't just, you're not just happy with the status quo. You keep doing more. And Jesus praises them for that. 
He thinks that's a terrific show of heart. It's a terrific show of compassion for their community. But then he has something against them. He has something against them. Their love manifested in service. Their love manifested in helping. Their love manifested in going the extra mile for the people around them. But they lacked a passion for the truth. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't, it could be, but we don't think that the woman's literal name was Jezebel, that this is clearly Jesus trying to call the church in Thyatira back to Jezebel in the Old Testament, who ruined a king who had a weak-willed husband, and he was the king of Israel, and she brought in the worship of false idols and led to lots of destruction in her wake. And so for Jesus to say this, he's trying to get them to see that this, whoever this false prophet is, this prophetess who's coming in and teaching things outside the gospel, that she's directly linked, not genealogically, but linked in spirit to the one of the Old Testament that they all would have known and despised. And the world has kept this to be true. Whether or not people believe in the Bible and follow the scriptures, when's the last time any of you thought about naming your future daughter Jezebel? Probably never. When, when have you thought about naming your son Judas? Even if you go outside of the scriptures and you don't believe in the Bible... The world knows these names as names that aren't connected to awesome things, right? And so Jesus uses the same, this is going to be several thousand years after this act. And so then in Revelation, he uses the name to draw back to Jezebel. Whoa, that's a slap in the face. that's That's a mark to the church. And we see a couple problems. One, who calls herself a prophetess. That's issue number one. She comes into the church and says she's a prophetess. Her pedigree, her her validation came from herself, not the congregation. He doesn't say, you call her a prophetess. You've elevated her to that. You've given her permission. You've shown. He says she's called herself a prophetess. This is a person who's come into the church and said, I'm amazing. I have this gift. You should listen to me and I should be in charge. This isn't a person who's come in through a pipeline, who's come in through a system of growth in the church. Is their, their gifts are recognized by people in the church and leaders in the church, and then you slowly elevate them to a place of authority. This is a person that comes in and says, I'm awesome, you need me here. But that kind of a, of a lack of vetting was a problem in this church. We don't let just anybody come up here and open up a Bible and preach the word of God. We have had guests come and they've offered like to share a ministry, share a thing, share something. And they've said, well, you know, I can preach if you want. And I usually, nah, it's all right. I got this. It's okay. I, I like your ministry. I like what you're doing. I think we can support that. But I've never heard you preach. I don't know you well enough. I don't know your theology. I don't know what you're going to say up here. And it's really awkward when I have to come up from the front seat and grab you by the back of the neck and escort you out the building. That's not, it's kind of awkward. But if I have to, I will. 
Like that's, we don't just let anybody come up here and open the word of God. We don't just let anybody teach a Sunday school class. Do we have disagreements or maybe we think things differently about stuff? Yeah, I'm not saying we're all on the same page. There's a checklist. We've got to believe everything exactly. But we don't just let anybody have that role. And if there's disagreements, we work them out together. But we're not going to let someone come in and just throw whatever they want out. This church did that. This is a dangerous... She comes in saying, God speaks to me and gives me things to share with the congregation. That's not even, hey, I gotta, I, I'm going to read the Bible. I think this. I think this. She believes she has direct connection to God. This is the person that comes in and says, well, you know, I think we should do this. I don't know. I disagree. Well, I've prayed about it. Hold. That's your trump card? Because you... I prayed about it too. God told me you're a fool. You say you should do it. Who's right? Uh, uh, I don't, I don't know. Exactly. That's not how we function in the church. You don't just get to say, I prayed about it and we're going to do these things. What you say is, I've been praying about it. I've gone before the Lord. This is what I think. This is what God is telling me. Here's how I feel it should be. Here's where we're going with this. What do you think? And you go to the council of people around you. It's why we have elders, why we have leaders, why we have people on staff. You come to us and say, I feel like God is asking, is calling, is saying we should do this. What do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. We'll, we'll pray about it too. You come together as a council of, of believers, of friends. It doesn't have to be like official leadership. You're friends who love the Lord. When I was struggling with whether or not I should leave the church in West Virginia, I felt like God spoke clearly in this meeting. The church was going in a different direction. They were not following the word of God. It was time to leave. I called three men who spoke at my ordination, who had walked with me for five years in ministry at, the, at that point. And I called them together and I said, I need you to pray for me. We came into a room. I told them what was going on. I told them what I felt like God was saying. We prayed and when it was all said and done, they looked at me and said, we were kind of waiting for this to happen. We, just wait, we were waiting for you to see it. We've seen for a while that it's been time for this to not happen anymore. And when you, when you see that happen, you don't walk in going, I don't know, Lord. I'm not sure, God. I don't know. I don't know. You come to the people. If I went to the elders on Wednesday night and said, I really feel like I need to sing a solo next week. <laughs> it's been burning in my heart. And I want to sing this thing. And I'm going to lay it out. And they say, well, hey, cool. Let's go to the sanctuary. Sing it for us. And they go, ooh. People might denounce their faith if they hear you sing. <laughs> Probably not a thing. You have to have some wise people around you that you take the things of God that you're hearing, that you're feeling, and you have people you run it through. That you say, this is what I'm... So there's a call for community. For us to have a community of people we trust and love and be honest with us while we hear from the Lord as well. This community just took it, her word at face value. They let her in. They let her in. And so she starts teaching to this whole crew and seducing the people in God to practice sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols. Now, we've seen this two more times already. There are these festivals that are happening. And she's telling the church, it's okay. You love Jesus. You come to church on Sunday. You put a little bit in the plate. You, you give. You serve. We serve in this community. Jesus is not going to care if you get a little wasted on a Friday night and sleep around on your spouse. Not that big of a deal. 
Six days a week, you're terrific. One day a week, you're evil. It's all good. That's what she's teaching this crew. And she's doing it through their work guilds. There's a strong, today we would, and this isn't fair, and I don't, we might call these unions today. But that's not real. It's more like professional organizations. We can't like throw unions under the bus. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reason to throw some unions under the bus, but not this. This isn't the, right? And so there's, there's this, I'm, I'm an iron worker, or I'm a, this would be a bronze worker. I'm a bronze worker, and I have, this is my community. This is my crew. And there's a bronze working idol. And I've got the bronze working idol, and it's a bronze hammer. I don't know what it is. So I have that symbol in my house, and then there's a party once every three weeks, once every four weeks, once every year, and we come together under the banner of the bronze hammer, and we get trashed, and we have fun, and we party, and we do whatever, and I cheat on my wife, and I do, and it's just one night, and Jezebel says, it's just one night. It's not a big deal. And so we get this, this picture of when we compromise our faith because of our connections We're in a dangerous position. We're in a dangerous position. I remember being part of the Teamsters when I worked for UPS in college. And I, you just, you had to be. You couldn't work at UPS and not be a part of the Teamsters Union. You can't just say, I don't want to be part of this. So I worked for two years in the preload at UPS and I got to strike in, was it 96? When there was the big, or whenever it was. 98, I think. The big UPS strike, I was on strike. And I remember getting up at three in the morning and calling in because nobody would talk to me because I just went to, I worked and went to class. I didn't hang out with all these people. And I would call as a strike over. Can I come to work? No, not yet. I just want to make a living. I want to provide. I want to I make. And then they put out the two lists for the union of this is the UPS plan for the, the employment. This is UPS plan in the, in the bid process. And here is the Teamsters plan. And they couldn't come together. And no matter what you remember or not, I read both plans and I got in lots of trouble because I called all my fellow union employees to actually read the plan instead of just listening to the union steward. Like, hey, why don't you read the plan? They didn't like that. That really hurt me for a long time. Uh, made my work a lot harder. And the plan that gave the whole linchpin of this whole debate was that UPS didn't want the money and retirement for UPS going to the, into a, a bucket that went to all Teamsters people want to be segregated out for just the UPS people. And that was the whole linchpin. You heard all the stuff in the news, all the stuff. And, but these guys that I worked with wouldn't even read the plan. Whether you liked it or not, thought it was good or not, I don't really know. Because I quit six months later and got a teaching job. It didn't really affect me. But they, these, they wouldn't even consider thinking about stuff. They just went with it in a way that was almost worship-like. Well, I've given, I've done, like, but can you think for yourself? Like, don't you think this might be a, no, it's just who I am. Now, roll that into your, to questions of faith. That's just money and insurance. I mean, those are kind of big deals, but that's just, now roll into that the union would ask you to compromise your faith. That being part of an organization would then say, well, you're part of this organization supporting things that go directly against your faith that compromise what you believe. But you have to be a part of it. It's part of, and then if you take a stand and say, I will no longer support these things, what happens to your economic future? What happens to your retirement? What happens to, like there's your serious implication. Like what, 
Jesus is calling this church, these people in Thyatira to is to value the word of God, to value the truth of God above their work relationships. You know how scary that is? To say that, well, I don't believe in this. Well, you're getting a paycheck from them. You still support them. Oh, I don't know. That's why I feel like the church in Thyatira probably has more links to us as people in America. Where people say, hey, you believe that, but you can't say that. You can't profess it. You can't do this because it goes directly against what we believe as a community, as a company, as a boss. And if you continue to say that, then we're going to sue you. You're going to get out. We're going to throw you out of your job. And are you willing to lose your financial security for the gospel? Are you willing? That's the call that we're seeing here with Jezebel and Thyatira. Now, as a church, we, several years ago, probably, and I think I'd been here maybe nine months or a year, um, it had became very obvious that churches in America were going to begin to get sued. That if we took stands on theological issues and we refused service to other people, then we were going to get sued and it could be a pretty big um, lawsuit-rich environment for the church. So we stopped charging for our building usage. There used to be a fee to have a wedding here, to have, and we completely threw out all charges. Um, because if we don't charge you, I can tell you no, and you, can't, you have no legal recourse. What you can go to is you can sue based upon some other issue, but it can't be, because what would happen if, if we charge for a wedding or we charge for like the youth rally tonight? There's no fee from this church for this group from the community to come in and use our building. There's no fee. But if I charge them, then there could be like the, the Laramie Wiccan Cauldron Brewing crew want to come in and have like eye of newt and honey of something in a big pot. And they would say, well, you let that youth rally happen there. You got to let us be here. And I say, no, because that goes against the faith of this church. It kind of says Christian in the title. We're not going to do this. And they would say, well, you let them. You charge them $500 for building usage and you refuse us services. Guess what I'm suing? And they would probably win. So we got rid of all fees talk to the leadership, talk to a lawyer friend of mine, and said, that's probably a wise thing to do because now they can just go, so you disagree with witchcraft? Yes, I do. We're a church. We don't charge. Oh, dang it. Okay, see ya. So sometimes you gotta take steps towards not putting yourself in those situations. Now, am I telling you all have to quit the union you're a part of or leave your jobs or run away from your business? I'm not saying that. But this church in Thyatira was pushed and they were feeling economic pressure from things that were outside of God, and they were compromising that. We love everybody. We love everybody in the community. Truth doesn't matter. And they were getting themselves in trouble. They were getting themselves in some serious trouble. Now, Jesus gives us an option. So we can poke fun at this lady, at this prophetess, we can kind of pick on her and talk about Jezebel all we want. But Jesus gave her away. Jesus told her. And we get the word that I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. That Jesus gave her the space. This should be a giant relief to all of us. That no matter what we do that goes outside of God, he calls on us to repent and he leaves his arms wide open for acceptance. No matter what goes on in our hearts, in our hands, in our heads, in our, he, he's constantly standing there with arms wide open, 
which even though Creed was a defunct band, I love that song. A terrific, like, arms extended for a giant embrace of forgiveness. And she refused. This is the picture when, when someone asks you the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? The answer is he doesn't send anyone to hell. They refuse to repent. And one of the most unloving things that a savior could do is force people into something that they don't want. He doesn't force any of you to put your faith in him. He stands with arms wide open waiting for repentance. Think about the staunchest atheist ever, Richard Dawkins, the current one, which he's so intellectually dishonest. Like he's the easiest atheist to poke holes in. And like don't, when he's on, even a good atheist can't stand Richard Dawkins because he's such a fool. He's not even well-respected amongst atheists because he's such an idiot. But you have him, if Richard Dawkins comes to the day of his death, And he stands before judgment and Jesus says, Richard, you've denounced me your whole life. You've disbelieved in me, but I'm a universal God. Come on in. Wouldn't that be the worst thing for him? It would be punishment. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. And so Jesus gives you what you want. He gave Jezebel what she wants. I gave her time to repent, but she refused. She refuses to repent. And so he tells us what's going to happen. That there is going to be pain and suffering. And he's really talking about hell. He gives us this picture. We'll break this down a little bit. People disagree on this. Um, Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her. I will throw into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. So this sounds like, like this, this is what a, an incorrect teacher of the Bible would use as proof that when you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Oh, she got cancer. It's because she's Jezebel. Right? I don't know if you've ever been around people like that or heard people say stuff like that. People say stuff like that. And it is awful. It's complete biblical garbage. Now, some would say or try to argue that this is a direct curse upon Jezebel in this church, in this time, in this place. Behold, I'll throw her to a sickbed. They're going to the great tribulation unless they repent of her works and strike. We get the picture of the great tribulation. And then we get pictures of when we get to the next couple of verses, that there are people in this church that are holding strong. And then we get a giant picture of the end time. So when you put all of the end of chapter two together, I don't think you can land at a truth that says this is specifically about these people in this church, that they all got struck with a sickness. They went to their sick bed and then all of her followers, children aren't her literal children. It's her followers that they all died. People will use this. If you go against the word of God, He's going to put you in a sick bed. He's going to kill your children. Now, maybe I just have been around more incorrect people than you, but I've heard that. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying there's an eternity coming and it's going to be awful. 
There's an eternity. This is a, this is a picture of hell. This is a picture of judgment. This is a picture of the end. This isn't a picture of you getting sick. But it still has a seriousness to it. That if you refuse to repent, you're actively going against the word of God and you refuse to repent, pain is coming. Hell is real. Eternity is a long time. It's an eternal separation from God, void of hope, void of love, void of compassion, complete desolation. That's awful. That should be enough. And then people will focus on, well, he gave me sores. Like there's part of me thinks this would be because of the repentance promise. This might be kind of fun if this was how church really worked. Like you walk into church on Sunday morning and you got sores on your face and stuff. Like, oh, you've been sinning this week. And then we come together and we worship and we repent and we walk out washed white as snow and like there's no more bumps on your face. And you're like, that would be kind of of nice, wouldn't it? You know when sin pops up because it's the bump that pops up on your face or your arm or whatever. And I'd be so unrecognizable every Sunday, it wouldn't be worth having me here. It's like, whoa, Mike, what's the problem? And then it all fades away and it'd be, I look my handsome self at the end of every Sunday service. Right? So I, I don't think that that's what's going on here. It's that this is a picture of of destruction that's coming. It's a picture of destruction. And then we see the promise to those who, well, I liked how Eugene Peterson said this in the message, so I just thought I'd share it with you. Um, I'm about to lay her low along with her partners as they play their sex and religion games. We can't think of this as just a game. The bastard offspring of their idol idol whoring, I'll kill. Now, I'm I'm not, I didn't just do this because there's profanity in it, but you know those times when you like hurt your hand with a hammer or you drop something on your foot and an explicative comes out or at least comes to your head? I mean, some of you use like the Christian cursing, like freak and dean flob or whatever. Like you don't... (laughs) You don't use real words, you use the fake ones. But there's, there's like something when that, when that pain hits, like stuff boils up out of us, right? Or anger or frustration, they're there. And I kind of like how Peterson takes away the niceties of the ESV and just kind of throws it out. That if you follow a false god, defaming the word of God, then you are the bastard offspring of an idol whore. That sounds like when I hit my thumb with a hammer. But we got to have some weight to this. I think too often we can see sin in front of us. We can talk about it and we walk out. There's a heaviness to our capitulation with sin. That we partner in sin. We kind of walk away from it. We don't really worry about it. We don't call it out. There's a danger in that. We have to look at sin for the seriousness in which it is. It's a separator from us and God. It's something that puts a wedge between us and our Father in heaven. And we have to get rid of that so that we can have a relationship with him. There is a promise again. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And this is why I get the, the idea that the sickbed stuff isn't about a, a physical sickness for them specifically. Because he says, hold fast on what until I've come. He's talking about the second coming. And the sickness is going to be eternity. But he's telling this church, like, but there's a remnant in this church that holds fast to the word of God. But their issue is they're not calling out Jezebel. 
They're not calling out the sin that's in their midst. They're not calling out the false teaching. They're faithful. They love the word of God. They'll, in private, closed door, Sunday school, around the corner, will say, you know, I don't agree with what they're saying. I don't like the books they're reading. I don't like what's happening over there. I think they're wrong, but I'm not going to talk to them about it because that would be awkward. I don't want to go to the elders with it. I don't want to mention it. I don't want to, because I have to see them in Walmart every week. Or they work down the hall from me, or they work across the street from me. And even though their lives and what they're, I don't want to, that's that's tough. But he's telling them, you're doing well. You've got the bronze feet. You're holding fast to the truth, but you have this person in your midst that needs to be corrected. And you have to do that in love. Then we get this sarcastic line. Which, again, I love the humor of Jesus. Like, that's a whole other sermon sometime. But he has some funny one-liners throughout his words. So he tells them, Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. This is like picking on every TV channel show, trying to say that Jesus isn't the way. And, you know, I'm not going to say certain talk show hosts that have their own magazine and network now. But they have... You have those people that will then say, well, I've got the better way and I read some stuff and a new revelation and a new thing and a new, and Jesus is saying, like, that's always what people do when they try to get you to to walk away from the faith of your child or the faith of your first profession of faith. They try to say, well, you know, I read some books. I took a pilgrimage. I went to a mountaintop. I went to this wise teacher. They showed me the real way to read that passage. And that passage is not what you think. Even though it's been taught that way for 2,000 years by most of the church forever, I'm smarter than all those people before me. Because I went to Wikipedia, I watched the History Channel, I saw a blog, and I now know what that passage really means. You do, huh? Interesting. Can I do that with the other ones? Because that would be awesome. There's some people that I would like to not, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) So can I just, Jesus just meant don't kill the people that are in your neighborhood. If they're in another state, it's perfectly fine. Can we play with all those two? No, we can't. He's making fun. He's making fun of people that would say, I've got a deeper understanding because I am so enlightened. And he's telling them it's the deeper things of the enemy. It's the enemy that tries to talk like that. Hold fast until I come. I'm coming back. Hold fast until then. Then we get to the end, 26, 29. And I'll admit that there's two verses in here that I'm completely confused about. I'll give you what I think, but I'm probably wrong. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So then he gives us that if we can conquer and keep the works until the end, we honor the word of God until the end. He's talking to this church. You've got Jezebel in your midst and her followers. You love your community. I'm calling you to have a a deeper desire for the truth to be taught. But if you hold strong, I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. And if we break this down, the one who conquers, so this is 
This isn't just the one who held strong. This is the one who repents. Again, we're a church of sinners. We're a church filled with people who are not perfect. Every one of us. And if any of you think you're perfect, we need to have coffee soon. This is all of us. The one who conquers, the one who loves their neighbor, wants to speak truth, is afraid to do that, is maybe a little bit neglect in the sharing of who, of who they love in Jesus, he's still for you. Those of you in deep sin, deep sexual sin, deep immoral sin, deep, they're all sin, but the kind that will wreck your whole house, they'll wreck your whole, the, the, you're, you're inches away from getting caught and ruining everything, and he's for you. He's for you. If you repent and turn your ways, he's for you. He's for all of us. We get a closing glimpse of this arms wide open love that will never end. And then we get this line that I don't really understand. To him, which would be the one who conquers, authority over the nation. Now, does that mean that all of us get to be empire of the earth? That requires a lot of earths for us. Like that's a, that's a comic book multiverse issue that I don't really understand either. Right? So it can't be that. And he will rule them. Who's the he? It's got to be the him. Will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. So I get to rule my earth with a rod just like when pots are broken. Okay. The rest I get. Even as I myself, this is Jesus... Have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. So we get the same authority. This person who repents gets authority of the rod of iron over broken pieces, even as Jesus has authority from the father. I think this is a picture of us in the time of judgment, that when Jesus is judging the earth, when the second coming happens, when the rapture is done, when all those things are done, we will be witness and present during the judgment. That in that instant of rapture, new, it's all done, Jesus comes back, cloud, it's happening. That there, in that instant of when the earth is being judged, we will be standing next. We're not, gonna, we're not the judges. We don't get the beam of seat. We don't, we're not the judges. But we will be witness to all of this happening. And the earth and pots, the, the clay broken pieces. It's the people who are going to be judged. And then he tells us what the prize is. I will give him the morning star. Who's that him? All the way back to the one who repents. We get Jesus. He's the morning star. We get Jesus. I think this is an image of all the wrong that's been done to us in this room. All the wrong that's been done all the abuse, all of the neglect, all of the words, all of the physical actions, all the things we've seen in the world, the people killed in genocides, the Christians martyred around the world. There's going to come a moment in eternity when all of that is put before the Lord of judgment that we get to stand there in authority with Jesus as he judges and we get to let all of that go because we get Jesus. We get the morning star. Yes, people will be judged. Yes, we will see it. Every tear will be collected. Every tear will be poured out. We will understand that it's better, that he's better than everything, and that people, there is a judgment coming. You will not be just let go. You'll be held accountable. We get Jesus. 
That's the, that's, the, that's the key line. I get the morning star. The pain done to me, the pain I've done and been forgiven for, all of those things, I get Jesus. He's the prize for eternity. I'd like to put on the screen, can I get an amen? But some of you are the frozen chosen. Like, can I get, you get Jesus. Thank you. He's the prize. He's everything. You get Jesus. The end of this letter tells us. Thank you for responding. I appreciate that. We get the king. We get the king. In the midst of all the things that we've done wrong and the things that have been done to us, we get the king. And that makes everything worth it. So what does that look for us as a church? As we kind of close, and I try to wrap this up. <laughs> Ephesus lacked love. Thyatira lacked the truth. We have to have both. To be a healthy church, we need both. We've got to have both. I think for a lot of the church in America, for lots of seasons, I, I think this is also the issue that burns people out in church and makes people hate church. One church is super loving and will not call out sin will not teach the Bible as truth, will not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, will not take a stand for the Word of God. And so, but we're very loving. We care for each other. Super caring. We will not take a stand. And people go, I can't be a part of that church. They're, it's a great place to be. I love them. But they, they have no backbone. Not going to do it. Then you got the other church that has a very straight backbone. We will stand for the truth. We will call you out in your sin with zero compassion in that calling out. Not meeting sinners where they're at with a commitment to take them to the next level, but instead to just point and protest and call out and say this and this and this and this and this. And when these people come for help, can you show me? Can you disciple me? Can you? No. Read your Bible and repent. Then we can be friends. And I think churches across, at least America, the pendulum swings one way or the other a lot of the ways, a lot of time. We have to be, to be a healthy church, we have to have both. We have to be loving and compassionate and meet people right where they're at, and we have to love them enough not to leave them there. Stealing from Matt Chandler. We must love them right where they're at and then love them enough to teach the truth to them, to show them the truth. To call them out. Is that fun? No, it's not. Both, if you just go both extremes, that's easy. I can stand over here and tell you X, Y, Z, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and just sit back and go, you've been judged with no compassion. Or I can sit over here and say, you know, it's not a big deal. Jesus loves you as you are. Come on. Let's have a coffee and, and a hug. I like coffee and hugs. I'm not saying those are bad. Let's, let's just come over here. Let's sit Let's just watch things. Let's do things. Let's never talk about what's going on really. Let's never really get to the truth. Let's just be friends. And the truth's in the middle. That I'm going to love you right where you're at. I'll be compassionate. There'll be lots of coffee, lots of hugs. And then I'm going to look you in the eye and say, we have some things to talk about. There's some things going on that Christ wants to address in your heart. Can we do that? That's a healthy church. That's a healthy church. My prayer is that, if I'm just being honest, I think we're a pretty healthy church. Do we have room to grow in both those areas? Yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. 
but I want us to be better at being that kind of healthy to this community. Or known in this community as a church that's loving and caring and will serve in miraculous ways and extravagant ways, but people also know us as a church that holds the Bible to be the truth of God and that we will proclaim it. Is that true for your life? Do you have things pressing around that are causing you to compromise your faith? I think that's for you and the Lord to sort out. I'm not going to point out to all of you what I think is wrong in you because that's not my job. Because I love you. But if we talk in person, I'll tell you. And what I'm also confident about is the people I look around in this room as I make those jokes, there's been more than one of you in the course of my time in this church that's come to me and said, I think there's some issues. Mike, I think we need to talk. I need to care for you. You said this. This happened. There's been more than one of you that's done that. And I love you for it. And we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't have that. And I don't think we would be growing as people if we didn't have those people in our lives. Love and truth. It's all that matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time that we have in this church. Thank you for um, your word. A constant example that you will never let go of us, but also a constant reminder that you call us to be people of love and truth. And I pray, Lord, where we lack in one of those, you'll begin to shore us up. You'll begin to encourage us to be more compassionate. You'll encourage us to be more bold with the truth of your word, that you'll help us, Lord, in both of those areas. It's, I'm not presuming this is easy. It's people's lives and relationships and professions and connections and it's hard and it can be sticky and we often don't know how to do it right and sometimes we mess it up royally so i pray that you'll help us to be in tune with the spirit you'll guide us each and every step along the way and you'll give us the words to share with those who would hear we love you amen